Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessing <clears throat> and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host here this evening on the Gift of Freedom. I'm a genealogist in the Kansas City, Missouri area, where I am the president of the Midwest Afro-American Genealogical Interest Coalition. My guest joining to me tonight is Arthur Greg Grandin, here to talk about his book, The Empire of Necessity. Good evening, Greg. Good evening. And how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Okay. Now, let's talk about your book. Is this a, a novel or a nonfiction book? Oh, it's a nonfiction book. It's a, um, it's a book that looks at um, an event that inspired a, a story that Herman Melville wrote, a, a, an uprising on a, on a slave ship in the South Pacific, a Spanish slave ship in the South Pacific. When year did this occur? Um, 1804, the year that Haiti in, declared independence. Okay. Where was the ship headed? And what was the name of the ship? Well, the ship's name was The Trial. It had an English name because it had been seized by the Spaniards from, from, a, from a Quaker merchant. But the ship was on its way to Lima, um, to Peru, with a group of about 70 West Africans. And, um, and the story isn't so much the revolt, although the revolt itself is interesting. It's what happened afterwards that was, that's, that's truly fascinating. It's... Um, when the ship crossed paths, this, the, the West Africans rose up, seized the ship, and demanded to be returned to West Africa. That would have entailed sailing around Cape Horn and back into the Atlantic. And, um, and they, they, um, they killed most of the Spanish crew, including the, sailor, the slaver who was taking them to, to, to Lima. But then when they crossed paths with a New England sealing ship, uh, captained by a man named Amasa Delano, they um they came up with this uh, elaborate ploy. They they could have fought or they could have fled. They had at this point been sailing um, after the revolt for about five weeks, and they were starving and they were thirsty. But instead, they came up with this um, this plot to uh, to pretend to let Amasa Delano board the ship, and they would pretend to be slaves. Um, they would they would uh, the leader Mori would. Um, would stand by the Spanish captain whom they had kept alive uh, in the hope that he would return them to, to West Africa. And they would, um, and, the, and, and he would be introduced as his, as, as the Spanish captain's personal slave. And, um, and the rest of the West Africans would, would pretend to be enslaved again. And it was just this remarkable event that, that, um, that for nine hours, they basically performed this pantomime of the master-slave relation where they, where they managed to trick this New England sea captain 
an experienced mariner that um, that they were still slaves. It was a it was a story that inspired Herman Melville's wonderful short novel Benito Sereno. Wow. Uh, did the Quakers have anything to do with this? Well, the Quakers only in the sense that um, that the the ship was um, the ship the, the it wasn't a slave ship exactly. It was a cargo ship that happened to be carrying slaves. It was a cargo ship that that went up and down the, the west coast of South America from Chile up to Lima to Peru, and. Um, and the ship itself was what had been owned by the Quakers, but the Quakers were, it was seized by the Spaniards because the Quakers were using it to smuggle goods, um, not not enslaved peoples. So they were indirectly involved. Okay. So how did they pull this uh, revolt off? Well, that's do? the question, right? How, what did they draw on? Because all of the documents are from the Spanish point of view. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that the Spaniards identified them as Muslim, that the, the enslaved peoples were from West Africa. And, um, you know, and by the time they made it into the Pacific, they had been on this year-long, over a year-long ordeal. They had um, endured not just the Middle Passage, which, of course, all enslaved peoples into Americas did, but then from Montevideo and Buenos Aires, which is in southern South America, they were marched across the whole American continent, all across the Pampas, and then up the Andes at the highest point of the Andes, and then down into Chile and put back on this other ship. And so, um, and and they had come from West Africa, and the Spaniards identified them as as um, as being literate in their own language, and I'm presuming that to mean Arabic. Um, because that was the language of, um, of education in West Africa among Muslims. Um, and they had familiarity with contract law because one of the things that they did after the revolt was they demanded that the captain, Benito Sereno, um, sign, a, sign a contract. After they executed the slaver, they, had, they drew up a contract in their own language and where they promised they would return the ship to Benito, back, to him, back to the captain if he if he delivered them back to West Africa. So, what did, so one of the things that I speculate is that they, is that they drew from this theology, right? Islam was a, you know, is a prophetic religion with a belief in a universal God, um, and it was very powerful. Um, uh, excuse me, Greg. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, something you said there that, that struck me. You said that they signed a contract? Well, they wrote up the a contract. They wrote up a piece... They- yeah, they, I mean, they no, they wrote up a piece of, after the revolt, they wrote up a, 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 the, this, this, the Spanish historical documents indicate that they wrote up a document, a, a contract, and they, um, and, they, and they forced the captain to sign it, uh, in a, and where they, they said that they would return the ship if, they, if, if, if the captain returned them to West Africa. And I was just using that as an example to indicate that they were, they seemed to be um, not just literate, but they had experience in contractual law, so maritime law. Um, so how one long, of the how long would it have taken? How, how long would would what have taken to, to return to West Africa? To, uh, yeah, to get back to West Africa. Well, a few years earlier, there was a there was another revolt on another. Sl- slave ship leaving um, Montevideo, and this one actually was rounding Cape Horn, and um, the West Africans rose up, 
right before they had were about to leave the Atlantic and and move into the Pacific, and and this ship. This revolt actually probably – I talk about this in one of the chapters of the book. The book's called The Empire of Necessity. Um, uh, would have um, – this, this, this revolt actually was successful. They made it across the Atlantic um, and, and back to Senegal. It's really a remarkable story, this, this story. And this most slave ship revolts – when they when when historians say they you know which have, if to the judge successes is they would have occur near a coast you know near a shore whether it be in Africa whether it be Africa or America or the Americas and they'd run the ship ashore and maybe escape in um, this revolt actually made it back across the Atlantic it, this one took three months and it took them three months to get from Cape. Cape Horn back to Senegal. It's really a remarkable story, and these and 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 these rebels were Muslim also. And what was the name of that revolt? Well, that ship was called the San Juan or the Saint John, the San Juan Nepomuceno or Saint John, um, and that happened in 1800, 1801. Are there any books out there um, about either revolt other than your book? No. No, I mean Melville, as I mentioned, fictionalized the story. He he got the story from the memoir of this North American captain and who who, who made it back to the United States and wrote up his experience in an 1816 or 1817 memoir, and that's where Melville got the story from. And then he fictionalized it in 1855. So, do you think you'll be writing that book about that uh, first revolt that you were talking well, about? Well, it takes up. A, I pretty much, I think I found all the information. It was difficult to find information, and it takes up a whole chapter in, in, in this book, so I think I've told the story to the extent. Oh, that. okay. So you got a chapter in the current book. Yes, The Empire of, the Empire of Necessity. The Empire of Necessity. Um, how can we get a copy? Well, I mean, it's on Amazon or it's in bookstores. Um, it's in, it's hopefully I would I I hope it's in bookstores, but I'm pretty sure it is. It's in hardcover. It'll be in 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 paperback within a few months. Okay. And uh, do you have contact information? Well, if anybody wants to contact me, you can just email me at my last name, Grandin G R A N D I N at N Y U dot E D U. Okay. How long did it take you to research that book? Well, it took me quite a long time. I've been working on it for six or seven years, and the research was where we're, we're in many countries. Um, uh, you know, um, it was in Montevideo, in Uruguay, Buenos Aires, and Argentina, um, uh, um, Santiago in Chile, and uh, Lima in, in Peru, and then I went to Senegal, I went to Dakar, and, uh, and to... Um, Port St. Louis, and um, Liverpool, and London, and Boston, and Duxbury, where the captain was from in Massachusetts. So it took me about, yeah. I'd say, six years. And what did you learn through that research that knocked your socks off? Any profound information? <laughs> well, one was the role of Islam in American slavery, um, and the extent of it, and, and, and how much it's, it's, it's ignored, and historians kind of miss that history. And uh, the other is is just the uh, just this. I mean, something that I always knew, but uh, I guess um, you know, I guess I guess it wasn't until I began to do the research that I that I really began to understand it is just how central slavery was in the creation of 
the modern world, modern capitalism, and all the institutions associated with capitalism, law and uh, religion and philosophy and insurance and economics, uh, how how critical uh, slavery was in, in all of those in all of those in the in the building of all of those institutions that we still live with. Um, so I guess that would be the the, the main over overarching theme. You know. Yeah, six years, uh, a lot of port of calls. What uh, prompted your interest? Well, I used so to assign, I assigned the, um, I assigned the Herman Melville story, and I was just prepared, but I assigned it as fiction. Uh, it's just an interesting, it's a great story, um, all told through the point of view of the North American, of the white captain, and, and how he can't see what's in front of his, his face, and Melville plays around with that kind of blindness and that oblivion. And um, and I just I assigned it and um, and and I was preparing to teach the book and literary theorists have known that Melville got it from a true event, but nobody actually researched it, and I was just amazed that um, you know that 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 this group of West Africans who who had been through so much up until that point um, managed to summon up the strength and the resources in order to um, pull off this deception. You know, in some ways, I think it's kind of the, it reveals the foundational deception on which slavery rested on, the idea that enslaved peoples had no inner life, they had no mm-hmm. inner thoughts, they, 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 you know, they were transparent, and, and, and what there was on the inside was what there was on the outside. I mean, these West Africans, what, what's wonderful about this event is that they were they they used the things that they were said not to have discipline and reason and cunning and um and in order to give the lie to the things that they were said to be humble and simple-minded and faithful and they think it's really a remarkable remarkable event yeah you talk about being cunning you mentioned earlier let's talk a little bit about that deception that they pulled off um where they role-played being enslaved and had the Spanish captain go along. How did that end? Well, it didn't end well. I mean, it, it, it was successful up until the point. So Amasa Delano, the, the, the white New England captain, spends pretty much all day, all daylight hours on board the ship, about nine hours. And, um, and he knows something is wrong, but he can't quite figure out what it is. And uh, he all the, all the time he wants to, he keeps on trying to speak to the Spanish captain alone, but the Spanish captain says anything that you have to say, you could speak to my my servant. You know he's completely trustworthy, Maury, who he introduces his slave as captain of the slaves, which I think was a double entendre. It was meant to you know maybe maybe uh, signal that he that that the Spanish Span, the Spaniard himself was enslaved and 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 Maury was his captain, but the New Englander was a little too dense to to figure out the the irony of that comment, and um and it ends so so by the end of the day, uh, Amasa Delano sends his crew to a nearby island to fetch water that takes a long time. They come back, they they supply the ship which was in distress, the Spanish ship with water and food and and um, and provisions, and they're about to leave. And he climbs down into his boat, his whale boat, and. He's going to row back to his ship. And what happens at that point is Maury, the, the West African leader of the revolt and, and, and the person 
pretending to be his, the Spaniard's servant who so he was the person you know that that had the 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 heaviest burden placed on in terms of the acting asked um the Spaniard how many how many men does does um does that does he have on his ship and when the Spaniard says 20 but most of them are on the island so Maury who just pulled off this 9 hour deception must have felt quite a bit of pride and maybe even a little arrogance having able to kind of pull off this this deception says well good because you know tonight will be will will you know it'll only take a few of us to take that ship and then we could sail that one back to back to Senegal because by this point the Spanish ship was in bad shape and at that point the Spanish the Spanish captain realized that his personal nightmare being held captive by these slaves former slaves would wasn't going to end anytime soon so what he does is he just throws himself off of the ship and he lands in the boat of Amasa Delano at his feet and it's only at that moment that Amasa Delano realizes um, and even at that point, it takes a while to figure out what exactly is going on. But um, but then events start to move fast after that, and Amasa Delano rallies his men to put down the the the, the rebellion and retake the ship and re-enslave the West Africans. Um, the leaders, well, they're all brought back to Chile to to South America. Um, the leaders of the revolt are executed and um, a few are sent into exile in southern Chile and the rest are sent on to Lima um, to be sold um, and then uh, and then I try to follow the, the the you know the the afterlives of all of these people the involved in the yeah. revolt yeah so um, you mentioned earlier uh, that you devoted a chapter to another revolt and um, are you re- uh, aware of a revolter by the name of it was a Cuban uh, revolter by the name of Hatui? Oh he, yeah, he, of course. Well, the the original the Native American. Yeah, sure. Okay. Did you is he included in your book? No, no, no. That's a little bit earlier. Okay. That's in the that's a in the late, Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about what you know about Hatui. Well, he's he was native he was Native American among the original inhabitants of of the island of Hispaniola, which was which is um, this was wasn't that in 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 Cuba and I mean in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, or was it in I Cuba? Know. I thought it was in Cuba, and you said he was Native American. Wait, maybe I'm thinking about the wrong person. Are you thinking um, maybe this is something different? Okay. Uh, this was a revolt by the name of Hatui, H-A-T-U-E-Y. Oh, and was it a was it a was it in uh, uh, of of Africans? Well, he he may be a Native American. It occurred in Cuba. So oh, I might okay. be mistaken by saying that he was Cuban. Okay, I'm not sure. I don't know that. Um, I'm not sure. I know that event very well. Okay. Well, getting back to um, back to your story, um, are there any other revolts mentioned in your book? Do you devote any chapters to any other well, uh, revolts? Well, um, yeah, because uh, a, a number of these West Africans, before they even made it onto this ship in the Pacific, they you know they came into the Americas on met, through many different routes and on many different ships, and and some of them have been involved in at least two slave ship rebellions um even prior to this 
um, in 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 Montevideo and in Buenos Aires. Um, it's, there's very little information on those events, but uh, the point is that you know that every time they were put on another slave ship, they tried to revolt. I mean, I think that that I think the drive for freedom and the horrors of of of, of slavery are fairly evident in in the risks that they took to try to, to try to break free. Okay. Um, Connie Morrison made a, a quote about your book that it was the hallmark of uh, scholarship. Yeah, she provided a very nice comment. Okay. And earlier when I was asking about what knocks the socks off, you mentioned insurance. What did you find out about insurance companies, particularly those insurance companies in, in Well, some uh, of the London. first policies that, nor- that northern insurance companies like At- Atna and, and, and others uh, wrote were on, on, on slave lives or slave ships. Um, some of you know Providence and, and Rhode Island and, and insurance companies in Rhode Island and Connecticut that they um, that they made some of their first profit off of enslaving and you know off of uh, underwriting policies on either slave slave ships or on slave lives. So if a slave died, uh, a, 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 a slaver could 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 have taken out a policy on on their life. And so a lot of the kind of um, estimations of people's worths, people's worth, or you know, actuary tables, were you know, were were um, were cobbled together um, in relationship to the institution of slavery. Okay. Are you aware of uh, an insurance master, Zong, Z-O-N-G? Sure. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And Tell that and that's the, that. that was more about that was an insurance company in London. I think that that might have been Lloyd's of London. Um, I can't remember exactly the year. It was in the 1700s, but um, increasingly, uh, uh, slavers were insuring their cargo, um, and um, that introduced a new kind of economic logic into the slave trade, where, where if um, uh, if a, a slave ship captain could decide that slaves, African enslaved peoples were were worth more money dead than alive. So in the case of the Zong. Um, there was a storm. There was a. Uh, 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 they were out of food, and the the captain decided to throw overboard a good number uh, of, of 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 the enslaved Africans alive because they were worth more dead. They could just claim them insurance. I have a case in the book of something very similar: a French ship, the Rodaire. And um, what happened with that ship is um, they went the the. Um, the, uh, they were hit by a disease. They were hit by a trachoma, and, they, and, and a number of them, and all of them actually went blind. Uh, uh, some recovered their sight, but um, as they approached, um, I think it was Guadeloupe, they were heading towards Guadeloupe, uh, slave island in the Caribbean, sugar island in the Caribbean. The captain, um, because, the, because the, 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 the enslaved peoples were insured, um, and and he probably couldn't. They probably couldn't get much money for enslaved, for blind slaves. Uh, he he threw over all of the all of the West Africa all of the Africans who were in West Africa um, uh, that um, that um, that had gone blind um, because they were worth more dead than alive because of the insurance policy. Well, in the case of the Zong, they overpacked that ship. They had more numbers than they were allowed. 
Do you think that was a common practice? Oh, absolutely. Sure, absolutely. To, um, I mean, absolutely. The amount of space. I mean, people enslaved peoples would have more room in their coffin that they wouldn't in in their in their berth on a slave ship. I mean, um, it was it was a common practice to to pack in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of. I mean, up to seven hundred peoples on, in 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 cabins and cargo holes that probably could have only should have only fit, fit a hundred or so. Yeah, Alex Haley mentioned that there was a, a larger, large percentage. Um, you know, yeah, Portuguese uh, ships had as much as thirty percent mortality rate on average because many of them were coming from East Africa, so they were sailing around the Cape of Good Horn, and the journey was that much longer. Mm. Yeah, he mentioned that uh, a number of uh, the slaves survived at a greater weight rate than their white slavers a lot of the slavers did not survive the journey yeah i mean i think that it was also very i mean um without being sympathetic at all i think that i think that the conditions for a lot of the ordinary seamen were pretty brutal also okay and you said your book is available to uh, amazon yeah amazon and bookstores it's called the empire of necessity Okay. And what's the publishing date? Is this a relatively new book? Yeah, it came out in January. January this year. Yes. Okay. And what got you interested in history in a general kind of way? Did it start in your childhood? Did it um, no, I went to I went to college a little late, and so I I became interested in. I think I I was. Uh, I became interested in Ronald Reagan's policy in Central America in opposition to Ronald Reagan's policy in Central America, and that drew me into history. And what particular policy of his? Oh, well, you know, support for the Contras in Nicaragua and the death squads in El Salvador was pretty atrocious and pretty horrible. So a lot of that kind of um, got me interested in the deeper roots of of U.S. Okay. and the world. Well, tell some of our younger people out there about the Contras and uh, Ali North and some of our younger listeners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was pretty horrible. In the 1980s, uh, Ronald Reagan basically turned Central America into into one of the last killing fields of the Cold War. Um, There were these strong social movements, um, left movements, and in El Salvador and Nicaragua, and Nicaragua they actually won with the Sandinista Revolution, and Guatemala, and 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 um, and and Reagan decided to draw the line and began funding in Nicaragua these uh, radical anti-communist counter-revolutionaries called the Contras, and they were quite brutal in terms of how many people they killed and in El Salvador and Guatemala uh, uh, Reagan supported death squads in order to prevent uh, left-wing insurgencies from taking power probably uh, the US was responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths in Central America in the 1980s and tens of thousands tortured and tens of thousands disappeared it really was a kind of um, Kind of just a brutal and atrocious uh, um, action policy on the part of part of Reagan, and, and of course, Iran Contra is the famous um, scandal in which, when Congress tried to stop aid 
to the Congress, to, 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 to the Contras, uh, Reagan administration, National Security Council, National Security Council um, uh, uh, raised money by selling arms, weapons to to Iran, and then um, you know Islamic Iran, then using the money, diverting it to support the Contras. Okay, and that was Ali North's fault. Yeah, that was Ali North's fault. Well, a lot of people, but yeah. Um, got a note here. Uh, do you know anything about the 234 and their connection to the transatlantic uh, slave trade? 234? Yes. No, what's that? Okay. What's 234? Oh, I'm sorry. The, the 234 uh, girls that were kidnapped in Nigeria. Oh, oh, oh. No, I don't know. You mean modern slave trade? Uh, no, I yeah, don't know. any modern mm. slave trade. Yeah. Um, no, no, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know anything about. I mean, other than what I've read in the papers. What's your opinion of what you've been reading and your take on? Well, I think it's, you know, obviously, obviously, it's horrible. But um, I don't, I don't know um, if. Um, I mean, I think, I think, the, uh, I don't know if, the, if, if the U.S. has the power to intervene. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's obviously I think it's horrible and it's atrocity, and I hope they come back. I hope they are found. Mm -hmm. Do you think it says anything about, um, uh, or have you read anything about black women being used as sex slaves on plantations um, during your slavery and dur during yeah, during your research during chattel slavery? Well, of course, the sexual, slavery. yeah, sure. Of course, sexual violence was just, was commonplace. It was a given. I mean, I think that that was, I mean, I think it's fairly well established that, you know, that, that, um, that, that was, that was an, a, a central part of slavery, of chattel slavery. Um, did you come, did you come yeah, about I mean, uh, any specific, uh, no, I mean, you know, it doesn't really make it in, it doesn't really make it into the archives, right? That's the kind of stuff that's just about the private manifestation of power. Um, I mean, it doesn't really make it into into the documents, into the sources. Uh, but if anybody who ex you know, any system that I think exercises that kind of body over uh, power over another, over other people's bodies and wills and souls, and uh, I mean, I think sexual sexual violence is it would is is, is central to it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I think that what information we do know about it comes from these firsthand accounts. And back as in 1804, in Spanish America, there's not that many personal accounts, uh, you know, the kind of memorial, like, you know, Frederick Douglass. And that comes a little bit later in the, you know, 1830s, 1840s, mm -hmm. you know, it's in 1804, it's, there's, it, it be, there's very few of that kind of, for, you know, of, of, of people who survive slavery and 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 to, you know and they you know they, they it, there wasn't really a genre of mem memoir writing that early so the the documentation is a little bit sparse and your but book, i'm empire, sure it was central but i'm sure it was absolutely central yes in your book the empire of necessity were there any women on any of the revolts that you there was they weren't they weren't identified as the leaders uh you know about half of the west africans were women and 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 then there were a number of children including infant children um the 
the documents, you know, the Spanish documents describing the case don't really mention them except to say that, um, you know, during the revolt and during these episodes, episodes of killing, the women broke off and began to sing a, a mournful dirge, you know, and one can only imagine what it was. Maybe it was, a, you know, a praise song. Maybe it was a call to war. Maybe it was verses of the Quran. It's you know it's un, it's un, it's unclear what what it was, but it, that's your only real um, documentary evidence of of the actions of the women. I'm intrigued by the title, "The Empire of Necessity." Yeah, um, <laughs> well, Herman Melville has an epigraph to another short story that he wrote sometime around there called, and it runs some that he wrote himself that says. Um, seeking to conquer a larger liberty man but expands the empire of necessity and I read it as as Melville's way of talking about the blindness of America of, of white America uh, you know the kind of belief that you can kind of skip off into the Pacific or skip off into the West you can conquer a larger liberty and you could escape the kind of bonds that tie people together that you you know you could be absolutely free, um, you know. But we all live in this kind of empire of necessity. We all live in this kind of uh, faded world to some degree. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of books about the empire of liberty, the empire of freedom, you know, all of that kind of stuff about the United States. I just thought the empire of necessity, you know, was a counterpoint to that. Greg Jordan, Grandin, I want to thank you for joining us tonight. And before we leave the air, can you tell us about any um, documentaries, and museums? Uh, do you have any uh, international travel tips? And then any final words? Well, I mean, Seville, you know, I just, um, you know, I did a lot of research in Seville in Spain, and that was a city built on slavery. Um, uh, you know, there's not too many museums about slavery in Seville, but there's a city in which, you know, you could see was the wealth from slavery. There's a great museum in Liverpool that focuses more directly on 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 the role on the history of slavery liverpool was a city of course built on the transatlantic slave trade uh, um and 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 sugar uh grown in the caribbean um you know that's that's definitely a museum that should that should be that should be visited anybody who makes it to liverpool okay do you have any final thoughts for us no just i want to thank you for having me on well, we thank you for taking uh, time out of your busy schedule to come on and talk about your book. No, it's, and, a, it's, a, uh, it's an honor. And we'll have you on after you complete the next one. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, Greg Grant and Arthur talking about his book, The Empire of Necessity. I want to remind you that these shows are archived and are available on iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. Also, June 19th, you're going to be in the area of Sapulpa, Oklahoma. That's S-A-P-U-L-P-A. I'll be doing a genealogy class there. For more information, you can contact Hattie Knox at 918-282-6200. Nine four. Again, I'm your host, Preston Washington, and thank you for joining us. Good night.